Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is American Biography, and I'm your host, Tom Daly. Citizens of the United States have long been proud of the fact that theirs was a nation of laws, and not men. However, law itself is a human creation. Influenced by subjective opinions of the legislators crafting it, the law enforcement officers enforcing it, and most importantly, in a common law system such as exists in the United States, that of the judges interpreting it. For these reasons, I've decided to begin this podcast with a biographical series on the life of John Marshall, an individual who laid down the essential bedrock principles upon which the political, national, and economic foundations of the United States were subsequently built. John Marshall himself begins an autobiographical sketch written to his friend and colleague, Justice Joseph's story, by stating, The events of my life are too unimportant and have too little interest for any person, not of my immediate family, to render them worth communicating or preserving. However, the editor of a 1937 publication of this letter to Justice Story, J.S. Adams, answers Marshall almost a century after his death, refuting that assumption. The importance of the judicial performances of John Marshall has cast a shadow over the story of his early years. His name has become identified with an idea, perhaps with a cause, and Marshall, the man, seems destined to fill a niche in the gallery of the legendary heroes of the American political scene. Hence, any discovery, which will increase however slightly, our knowledge of the man and of his character, must be welcomed by the historian and should be equally welcome by the casual reader. I'm apt to agree. 
Marshall was not born a judge, and the journey to his esteemable position in history allows modern seekers a fresh perspective on the Revolution and the early days of the American Republic. This is mainly due to the fact that John Marshall was not truly a founding father. During the Revolutionary War, he sat in no great civil or military councils, but marched with and fought alongside the common soldier as junior officer. He was not selected to attend the great constitutional convention held in Philadelphia during the summer of 1787, but he fought for the Constitution's adoption as the floor manager at Virginia's ratifying convention. Though a distant cousin of Thomas Jefferson, he came from a less patrician branch of the family tree. Like Marshall's father before him, John needed to work to support his family, but John's course would see him rise to be a preeminent advocate before the Virginia Bar, with a prosperous private practice, before inexorably being dragged into public service. Marshall's tenure as Chief Justice would not only be the longest in American history, and it can justly be credited with giving form to both the judicial branch, and in many ways, the nation at large. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's rewind, and let me welcome you to the life of John Marshall, Episode 1, Beginnings. On September 24th, 1755, Thomas and Mary Randolph Marshall welcomed the first of their fifteen children. It was a boy. They named him John. Thomas Marshall has been described as a man of narrow fortune and modest lineage. His father, John Marshall's grandfather and namesake, was sometimes derogatorily referred to as John of the Forest, giving us a good indication of the Marshalls' relative socioeconomic origins. Growing up in Westmoreland County, Virginia, young Thomas sometimes attended school, and there befriended a classmate named George Washington, forging bonds that would last a lifetime. After John of the Forest died in 1753, Thomas Marshall left Westmoreland County and moved further into Virginia's interior, to a settlement called Germantown. The following year, he married Mary Randolph Keith. By this time, the French and Indian War was raging, and though Thomas was a Virginia militia officer, he remained at home, caring for his pregnant wife, while his friend, the now Colonel Washington, led the retreat of General Braddock's forces from the disastrous battle of Monongahela. Marshall's mother offered John a more distinguished, if more salacious, lineage than his father. Through her, John Marshall was descendant from William Randolph of Turkey Island, and Mary Isham, sometimes referred to as the Adam and Eve of Virginia. Together, these two had nine children and 37 grandchildren, one of which was Mary Isham Randolph, John Marshall's maternal grandmother. In the 1730s, the 16-year-old Mary fell in love and ran off with an Irish plantation overseer named Enoch Arden. According to family lore, they married in secret and had a child together before eventually being discovered, at which point Mary's family killed Arden and the baby both and brought Mary home to her parents' plantation at Tuckahoe, where she, rather understandably, had a mental breakdown. She gradually recovered and eventually embarked upon another scandalous love affair, this time with a Scottish reverend, James Keith, who was not only the local minister, but also 17 years her senior. Once discovered, the Randolphs were again furious and forbade the two star-crossed lovers from seeing each other, 
Keith was forced to resign as minister of the parish, and was effectively banished to Maryland by church superiors. If he had heard of the gruesome fate of Enoch Arden, Keith may have thought himself lucky. As it happened, some reproachment obviously occurred because within a year the Randolph family relented, and Keith was allowed to return to Virginia. He and Mary married, and together went on to have eight children. Most importantly for our story, John Marshall's mother. However, this tale refuses to have a happy ending. Some years later, the now Mary Isham Keith apparently received a letter from someone claiming to be the long-thought deceased Enoch Arden. The questions this supposedly raised about the validity of her marriage to James Keith, and in turn the legitimacy of her children, shattered Mary's sanity, and was a blow from which she would never fully recover. Jean Edward Smith, one of Marshall's biographers, openly wonders if the unresolved nature of these lingering questions about legitimacy may be why Marshall spoke so rarely of his mother, but we know for a fact that John Marshall worshipped his father. With what comes down to us about Thomas Marshall's life, it's plain to see that he was a remarkable man. Thomas Marshall, like George Washington, was employed as a surveyor and land agent for Lord Fairfax, commonly called the Proprietor. Fairfax was a peer of the realm who had settled amidst his vast land holdings in Virginia, some 5.2 million acres of land that the Crown had granted to him. This was collectively known as the Northern Neck of Virginia. Agents like Marshall and Washington were to survey that land, find people to settle there, and collect the quit-rents due to the proprietor. Acting as a representative of Lord Fairfax brought with it increased social standing, which put Thomas on a path that, by the time he came to Germantown, enabled him to marry a Randolph, and within a few years' time to be appointed sheriff and tax collector, and then later a county magistrate, and even later to be elected to the House of Burgesses. Though Thomas Marshall would grow prosperous through his association with Lord Fairfax, and subsequent land speculation. All that was down the road a bit. At the time of young John's birth, the Marshalls lived in a simple log cabin. Thomas's income as a surveyor was supplemented by what subsistence farming the family did. So whereas his cousin Thomas Jefferson's first memory would be of being carried on a pillow by a slave, John Marshall would grow up wearing homespun clothing, and later in life he'd recall that his mother and sisters used thorns for buttons, and that hot mush flavored with balm leaf was regarded as a very special dish. In the 1760s, the Marshalls moved further west, to Leeds Manor, Virginia. Once there, Thomas Marshall leased land to build a new, spacious, four-room cabin for his growing brood, which would eventually total eight girls and seven boys. They called their new home the Hollow, and the decade the family lived there would encompass John Marshall's formative years. As a minister, Mary Randolph Marshall's father was also a teacher by the convention of the day, and Mary had therefore received an above-average education for a woman at that time. Added to this, Thomas Marshall likely owned superior mathematical talents, evidenced by him being both a surveyor and an artillery officer but he also possessed a broad intellectual curiosity. In book-starved rural Virginia, not only did Thomas Marshall have access to the proprietor's superb personal library, 
but he amassed a notable collection of his own. Marshall's parents took education seriously, and in the absence of local schools, they took the children's education into their own hands, all of them, boys and girls. Young John's education focused on history and poetry, and the writings of Livy, Horace, Shakespeare, and most influentially, Alexander Pope, whose essays John Marshall would transcribe and commit to memory. The only formal education John Marshall received in his youth came at age 14, when he boarded for a year at the same school his father had attended with George Washington. With the Virginia countryside still untamed, a story comes down to us about how Marshall and his classmate and friend, future President James Monroe, walked to school together every day with their books under one arm, and in a nod to how wild the country still was, with rifles slung over their shoulders. Upon returning to the hollow, John found that his father had brought in a minister to teach the local children. The Reverend James Thompson lived with the Marshalls for almost a year, tutoring the children, including John and Latin, in exchange for room and board. The Reverend soon moved on, but Marshall's education was not at an end. John Marshall's experience emphasized the autodidactic necessity of frontier education, and also helps explain his veneration for his father. Marshall later wrote, I continued my studies with no other aid than my dictionary. My father superintended the English part of my education, and to his care I am indebted for anything valuable which I may have acquired in my youth. He was my only intelligent companion, and was both a watchful parent and an affectionate, instructive friend. However, the dictionary was not the only educational tool available to John. In 1772, Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England became available in North America, and Thomas Marshall purchased a copy for his home. Originally published in 1765, Sir William Blackstone's commentaries would go on to revolutionize the study and practice of law in the United States. The commentaries was an attempt to collect and rationalize the maze of precedents that comprised and confused the common law system that had evolved in England since the Middle Ages. Suddenly the law, previously an obscure jumble of sometimes contradictory trivium, accessible only to the fastidiously trained lawyer, was now laid bare in a logical and systematic way, accessible to the many. What Blackstone had identified within the common law were very broad principles. Now, rather than relying on a universe of memorized minutiae from prior decisions, these systematized broad principles could be applied directly to the facts of a wide variety of individual cases. As Smith writes, his approach gave the law a coherence that it had lacked and imposed a system of rough order on what previously had been a hodgepodge of individual, unrelated, and often arcane precedents. Marshall would one day declare that, From my infancy I was destined for the bar, and it seems he took an early, active interest in the law, studying the commentaries along with his father. There is a story from about this time that says that Marshall began reading law with an attorney in Warrenton, Virginia, making a daily 36-mile round-trip walk just to do so. This would certainly have been the traditional path to a career in the legal profession. However, this seems apocryphal, 
as Marshall himself fails to recall this legal training and rather memorable commute in the autobiographical sketch that he provided for Justice Story. More factually certain, however, is that in 1773, the Marshalls moved once again. By now, Thomas Marshall was a well-established, influential man of means, and had built himself a respectable country seat on a 1,700-acre spread that he named Oak Hill. But this was not the only significant event of the year 1773, which also saw the intensification of the troubles between Great Britain and its North American colonies. At this point, no longer a child, Marshall later wrote of this crossroads. By the time I entered my 18th year, the controversy between Great Britain and her colonies had assumed so serious an aspect as almost to monopolize the attention of young and old. I engaged in it with all the zeal and enthusiasm which belonged to my age, and devoted more time to learning the first rudiments of military exercise in an independent company of the gentlemen of the county, to training a militia company in the neighborhood, and to the political essays of the day, then to the classics, or to Blackstone. Young John was quickly being swept away by the current of history, and he was determined not to be a bystander. John Marshall was going to war. This is where we're going to end today. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any ideas on how to improve the podcast or have any comments, questions, or concerns, please share them with me at AmericanBiographyPodcast at gmail.com. You can also find American Biography on Facebook or on Twitter at American underscore bio. But please join me next time as we backtrack a bit and talk about the roots of the American Revolution, as well as John's ever-increasing involvement. So, thanks again, and I'll talk to you soon.